understand I could have had class. I could have been a contender. I could have been somebody. So he's almost like having a second captain in the team. Second captain, first captain, whatever. Well, hello there, Radio 1 listeners. It's good to be back. You're very welcome to a brand new series of Second Captain Saturday. We're going to be right here every weekend for the next couple of months. So let's crack into it. Oh, my debit here with Kieran Murphy, Hamer. Hey, Owen. How's it going? And Ken Early. Hi, Ken. How are you? Owen, how are you? It's fair to say that one or two things have been going on in the world since season four of the show that may have pushed us into the outer recesses of people's memory. I don't know what you're talking about. (laughs) It's excusable if people have been thinking about things other than just Second Captain Saturday over the last while. So here's your refresher. It's a pretty simple premise we have here. Each week, we pick a person who fascinates us from any field. Could be a musician, comedian, writer, historian. We spend an hour in that person's company, chat to them about their life and career. But crucially, crucially, we also talk about how sport has impacted them. It can be anything from... Lord Peter Hayne using rugby and cricket matches as an arena in which to protest at Africa's apartheid government to Blind Boy Boat Club recounting how he once saw Paul O'Connell throw an apple at a teacher's head in school. It's broad church, Murph. Pretty much anything goes. <laughs> yes. Once they finish pouring through their sporting achievements and pick their highlight in inverted commas, Murph will then rank this sporting life of each guest as they vie for the title of second captain's greatest non-sports person, sports person 2021. There is no greater honour in the radio game, except for all the greater honours in the radio game. Well, obviously apart from them, Owen, of course. <laughs> Aside from them, there is no greater honour. Remind us, Murph, please, what sort of standard has been set in our previous series? Could have been a contender. Could have been somebody. <laughs> Well, half-decent cricketer, anti-apartheid campaigner and former Northern Ireland Secretary of State, the aforementioned Peter Hayne, saw off strong challenges from powerful US duo of Senator George Mitchell and former ambassador to the UN Samantha Power last season. And yes, everyone, I am aware of how ridiculous it is for us to be ranking these highly respected people like they're celebrity wrestlers. But (laughs) alas, that's what we're here here for. Here we are. Marathon runner Samantha Power has since been picked on President Joe Biden's team at the White House. A much-needed boost... You're, you're welcome, Samantha. <laughs> a much-needed ne- boost to her confidence after Peter Hayne clotheslined her from the top rope with his winning score <laughs> of 84 points. Best of the Irish last... Ti- best of the Irish last time out. It's like I'm a, a sports news reader here. Uh, best of the Irish last time out was the great Katrina Crow, whose love of George Best and Gerlach Nan earned her uh, mediocre 75 points. Previous champs from earlier seasons are Gabby Logan, a former gymnast at the Commonwealth Games, who yeah, finished on the... Very o- deserved champion, Gabby was, yeah. She finished on the all-time joint top scorer of 88 points. The artist National Treasure and former national swimming champion Dorothy Cross matched that 88 to take the title a year later. And actor and comedian Ashling B also makes the Hall of Fame. A lacklustre 78 points was enough to see her over the line during our weakest season. Her sporting highlight? <laughs> well... It actually was celebrity wrestling at the. She was. He was wrestling at the Edinburgh Festival, wasn't it? Yes. Okay, well, that's the kind of stuff that our, our guest today is up against. And our guest subjecting himself to this nonsense today. It's a biggie. Richard Ford is widely regarded as one of the greatest living American authors. He's the first person ever to win a Pulitzer Prize and the Penn Faulkner Award for Fiction for the same book, Independence Day. Not to be confused with the movie of the same name there. There are, as far as I'm aware, far fewer aliens in, in Richard Ford's I, I'm, I'm going to say less than three, no. certainly, anyway. There, there is a sports writer involved in a lot of his books. The central character in Independence Day is Frank Bascom 
Beckham. He's also the main character in Richard's breakthrough novel called The Sports Writer. And Richard himself made that breakthrough shortly after his own stint writing about sport for a magazine in New York. So there's lots going on there. He also knows Ireland really well. He taught in Trinity, spent many holidays in Connemara. So it's not a bad way to start the series. I hope you'll agree. So we'll get to that in a couple of minutes. The plan for the next couple of months then, just to recap, great guests, really crappy ranking system but also some great music every week starting this afternoon with something brilliant and Irish from CMAT 51551 email editor at secondcaptains.com tweet us at secondcaptains Richard Ford coming right up Go Every time I'm on the scale 
pretty good, isn't it? That's the self-proclaimed global celebrity teen pop sensation from Ireland, the hilarious and brilliant Seamat <laughs> with I Wanna Be a Cowboy Baby. Now, our first guest on this brand new season of Second Captain Saturday is one of the world's greatest writers, a Pulitzer Prize winning author who chose a sports writer as the central character of what turned out to be a number of his novels. And today we hope to discover the sporting prowess of the author himself, if we can. Richard Ford, it's a pleasure to have you on the show. What a laugh. <laughs> what a laugh indeed probably I wouldn't be writing about these things if I could do them right <laughs> well that's the same as as many of us so uh, you know you've got to make a career where you can I guess what you say in America is that if you can't be an athlete you can at least be an athletic supporter <laughs> <laughs> uh, I must say you've already won us over with your response to our interview request I hope you don't mind me reading out this email my rather demoralizing sporting skills have contributed all but immeasurably to my mental stability as a novelist I actually think that today at age 77 I'm possibly a better athlete than when I was 18 I still play squash, still do hundreds of push-ups, still ride a road bike till my thighs burn and cry out. And of course, I still pound up and down the plains and coolies of Montana, shooting pheasants and grouse. They'll have to carry me out, I guess. And of course, they will. That is the greatest email we've ever received. So you must be, you must be fit as a fiddle. Well, for my age, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty fit. I mean, it's, 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 it's either that or perish, right? All the things I like to do require that. As I said in the in the email, going pheasant shooting in Montana, and uh, I really like playing squash. Uh, I really get a lot of kicks out of it, and I don't have to win. I just want to play, and so for, to 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 do that without being a complete failure in laughing stock, I, I have to keep sort of fit. What does all that physical exercise do for you, other than just for pure enjoyment? Um, makes makes me not be angry all the time, right? I'm a novelist, right? So uh, <laughs> I think that's, that's probably what, what it does. Because I say, I'm not, I'm not competitive. There'd be nobody there who, who knew me would say that I was competitive. And being a novelist is, is, is the least competitive of, of enterprises. And so uh, I think it, it just takes my mind off my work. It just uh, gives me some other window to look out of. Um, it, you know, when you have to take your clothes off, it's, you don't have to avert your gaze. <laughs> Has the anger been an issue over the years? Uh, sure, of course, yeah. I mean, um, I mean, the people have told me that. I mean, I don't, I, I have never thought it was true on my own. But um, yeah, I've, I've always had, always had a temper. I come from a family of Irish people who had serious tempers, and so it was, it was always sort of encouraged to have a temper. You know, you know how your 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 grandmother will tell you sometimes that that it's good if you're fat. Fleshy, as my grandmother used to say, it's good if you're fleshy, you know, you, you, you look healthy. Well, my, my father thought it was good if you were angry about things. And so, uh, which isn't to say that he was violent or that he was um, an abuser. He certainly was none of those things. He was a perfectly nice man, but he just had a temper. And it was always said in our house, well, we have a temper, we're volatile. Does it help you as a writer, the, the no. physical stuff? No, there's no, there's no it, correlation. It you mean being angry. Uh, no, well, no, no, no. Maybe, maybe being less angry yeah, could help. Yeah, maybe. Well, I don't know. Um, yeah, it, I suppose it does. I mean, you know, being a writer is not a profession. Being a writer is a vocation, which which means, as priests will tell you, that that your life and your work run along the same rail. And so, um, being sort of athletically inclined, as I am, though not athletically gifted. Um, it's all it's all part of the same it's all part of the same breathing cycle you know I, I go to work in the mornings and I stay, stay as long as I can and then I go pound myself in the gym it's all kind of one long gesture 
Uh, were you always sporty as a kid growing up in Jackson, Mississippi? Oh, Christ, yes. I wanted to be a good athlete so much because there was so much cachet associated with it, a sense of uh, sort of manliness. Uh, the, the girls that came with it, my God, it was just... It was just irresistible to do to do all that, and I'm and I'm big. I mean, when I was 17 years old, I was six foot three and I weighed 185, exactly what I am now. And um, uh, but I just just <laughs> just didn't have the licks, you know. So I, I had a series of some crushingly humiliating experiences with various kinds of athletic enterprises, and, and uh, you know, I had a baseball coach, and I'm left-handed. Had a baseball coach who because I was so bad being left-handed, he made me throw right-handed. And I had a basketball coach who, who kicked me off the team. And when I went in to ask him why he had kicked me off the team, he said, I'm afraid I was going to have to play you. <laughs> had a lot of those kinds of experiences. Uh, finally, it got, it got to the point where I, I just thought of myself as not athletic. Um, so that's why, in a way, the arts opened up to me when I was when I was young, trying to find something that I could do that would uh, compensate for not being athletic. Uh, fighting also came along at about that time. And every, everybody where I grew up was always fighting with each other, fist fighting. And, um, and, and so you, you sort of had to be able to do that. You were sort of forced to do it. And so I did that. And in a way, that was compensatory, too. Was there a wildness to you as a young man were you uh, th- were you ever a little bit out of control and i say that because i i did hear you speak before about some of the things you got up to as a, a teenager there in jackson mississippi well i mean i was dyslexic i am still dyslexic and so i didn't do well in school and when you didn't do well in school and you weren't doing your studies and your homework then you had a lot of time on your hands and i and i fell into a crowd of, of a small crowd of people who were my age who liked to break into houses and steal cars. And so we did that a lot. And we, but we also got caught in it and you know, taken in by the police. And so whether we were wild or not, I, I don't know. I think we were just feckless is what we were. Um, we, we didn't need to break into houses. We didn't need to steal cars. We just did it because it seemed like the thing to do. So we did that. Was stealing a car in, in, in Jackson um, sort of in the, in the, I guess, 50s, maybe early 60s, just regarded as just a bit of horseplay? Kind of, kind of, yeah. I, I think a bit of horseplay that the, I mean, the police took it seriously. Mm-hmm. I remember when the police came to my high school and got me, they, they took it very seriously. And when the juvenile judge told me that I was gonna go to what was uh, in a kind of a reform school in Mississippi called the Little Red Schoolhouse, um, it, 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 it devastated my mother. It devastated my mother so much, in fact, that and she just went to pieces in the judge's chambers with me sitting there. And the judge, I think, felt sorry for her. So he didn't send me off to reform school. And in a way, it got my attention. I thought to myself, maybe for the first time, gee, you, you can really you can really cause your mother a lot of unhappiness. And I thought, uh, well, maybe you don't want to do that. So uh, it wasn't long after my father had died. And I, I was probably headed to a direction in a direction that I that I needn't have gone because the guy that I was hanging with did ultimately go to the penitentiary. And um, so I, I, I got saved, really. I, I got literally saved by my mother, which is, which is good, which is what you hope your mother will do for you. Yeah, absolutely. And particularly with your father not around, you, you sadly lost your father when you were 16, I believe. Right, right. He did. He had a heart attack and died in my arms. Which is 
horrendous. How, how did that change you, even in what you've described there? Was it, well, is it, is it as corny saying you suddenly became the man of the house, so you had to stop going around stealing cars, doing all that kind of stuff? Pretty quick I did. Not right away, uh, but pretty pretty quick I did. You know, you say it's a horrendous thing, but that's, that's really not quite what it is. It's, it's, a, it's, it's an alerting experience. Um, you, you are alerted to a bunch of things that you perhaps had not been alerted to before. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the finiteness of your parents, the sadness that your father lost his life at a relatively early age. So, so much of the awfulness of it was not just visited on me. It was awful enough on me, uh, much worse on my mother, because uh, they were lovers forever. And I was an only child. I've written about this. Um, but, but one of the things I learned when my father died was that I didn't cry. And as you said, I was probably standing ready to be the man of the house. And I didn't cry when he died. And I always felt bad about not crying. I, I really sucked it up. And, and, and only later on did I come to realize that feeling bad about not having what I thought was the proper response to my father's death was, was also another kind of alert, which is to say an alert that the conventional response to things that when your father dies, you cry, you break up and so forth. If, 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 the, if that's not what happens to you, that still is what happens to you. And it's still something that you have to live with. And, and, and so that there's a, there, there's a schism between the conventional way that things are supposed to work and how things work for oneself. And so uh, how things work for oneself is the sort of mantra for being a novelist. And I, I don't want to say that my father's death was the reason I became a novelist. That's much too simplistic and probably not even true. But nonetheless, I did learn to understand and to champion my own responses on the heels of my father's death and my own response to it. Is that something you can think about with clarity now all these years later and accept maybe give yourself give your younger self a break for responding yeah. the way it did at the time because I think people well, a lot of people will be aware now that there is no proper way to respond to something like that it's an in, very very much individual thing right that's right <clears throat> I mean I mean that's why there that's why there is ceremony you know to, to some extent it's why there's ceremony um after the death of someone to sort of organize response. But nonetheless, as you say, nonetheless, one's response is one's own, is quite what's uh, singular. Um, and yes, it, it, I, I do cut myself some slack as a young boy, 16 years old, for the way I felt after my father's death. Because one of the ways I felt was that he's not gonna be around anymore to look after me and to tell me what to do and to get in my way. And I loved him very much, but I would, you know, those kinds of, those kinds of, tweezings, which you tweeze the fact that you love your father from the fact that he's not going to be around to tell you what to do and kind of get in the way of what you want to do. Those kinds of tweezings are, are what literature and art are about. One of the knock-on effects of your father's death is that you moved into a hotel. Now, this is a place you'd spent quite a lot of time in, even while your dad was alive. It was called the Marion Hotel in Arkansas. Can you tell us about it, the type of place it was and what you were doing there? It's very funny about the Marion Hotel because, of course, it's a wonderful Marion Hotel in, in Dublin on Marion Square where I've stayed. I remember one time my wife and I were in Donegal and we, were, we had rented a house which turned out to be awful. And um, we were trying to decide how to get the hell out of Donegal and go back to and, and go back down to Dublin. And um, we, we, were looking in, we were looking in whatever newspaper we could look at. Here it said Marion Hotel. And we thought, well, 
that's kind of a, an omen, isn't it? We'll go check into the Marion Hotel and, because that's the name of the hotel where I grew up, spelled differently. But we, we went back to the Marion Hotel. And boy, I'll tell you, the Marion Hotel is a nice place. <laughs> I think you've just earned yourself a free stay the next time you're in Dublin, Richard. <laughs> I remember one time later on in life, I, I went back to the Marion Hotel because my friend Sam Shepard was staying there. And, and I, I went up with... Christina and I, my wife and I, went to the Marion to, to see him, and he was staying in this lavish suite in the Marion Hotel. And I was thinking to myself, ah, now I get it. No, 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 I get it. Uh, was the was the Marion Hotel in Arkansas the type of place that people like Sam Shepard would have stayed when in your youth when you were there? Yes, it it, it was actually in 1954, 1955, um, but it was also a place where the governor took his girlfriend. Uh, it, was, it was also the place where the legislature did its hijinks. It was the place where sometimes people came to commit suicide. It was a place where young boys who had just been conscripted into the army had to stay their first night after being sworn in, and then they would be bussed off to some, to, bussed off to some army base. Uh, it, was a, it was a drummer, what used to be called a drummer's hotel. It was big, had 600 rooms. We lived in, we lived in an apartment in the hotel. Uh, I, I did all the things. I saw all the things. I heard all the things that went on in that hotel. I was the grandson of the man who ran it, and so it was wonderful. I mean, it was. Um, there's a there's a Eloise story about a child who lives in the in the hotel in New York, uh, the Plaza Hotel, and it was it was, was kind of like the darker side of the Eloise books, the darker side of living in a hotel, because a lot of stuff goes on in hotels. Uh, that go on there because someone doesn't want you to know about them. You said you were exposed to all that stuff, even though you were there being brought up by your grandfather. He, he. What do you mean by that? How did he? Did, I would have thought that he was shielding you from any sort of if people are dying in hotel rooms and, and really dark stuff like that. Quite the opposite. No, um, he 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 was kind of a boulevardier, a sort of a flaneur and um, a sort of roused about a former um, prize fighter, boxing. And um, he thought that for a boy to grow up in a hotel meant that you should see all of these things that happen in life, because what happens in life, he thought, is, a, is microcosmed into the life in a hotel. And so he, he thought it was good for me to see people who committed suicide, or he thought it was good for me to see, oh, for instance, women who would come in um, and wives, the wives of farmers, big plantation owners who would come into the city, into Little Rock and, and, and sort of shack up together, two women, which, which was fairly exotic at that time. And he wanted me to see that because it, so, so that, was all in, that was all his notion of growing up. And if they, that certainly did make you want to write those things down because a lot of them were very memorable. And I have written down a lot of them and they are very memorable. You said he was a prize fighter? He was. Was he any was he any good in his day? Yes, he was quite good. He was what's he was what was called at the time, a, and you may have it in Ireland, a club boxer, a club uh -huh. fighter. Yeah, which meant that that maybe there would be a, a civic club like a Rotary or some other kind of civic club in a, in a town, and they would stage prize fights for money, and there would be betting and you know smoke filled rooms and all that stuff. And and he was the local tough guy at about one hundred and twenty eight pounds. Uh, and it was he, actually, who 
got me involved in boxing, uh, which is what I ultimately got involved in. Because he, I would come home and I would get gotten beaten up, and 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 it became quite clear that I didn't know what I was doing. Was one of the reasons I was getting beaten up. So he took me to the boys' club and got me involved in what are called in the in the states uh, the Golden Gloves. And so um, we, we we did that. Oh, so how how seriously did you take the the boxing then? Well, apparently not seriously enough. Because <laughs> um, <laughs> I, I got I got clubbed quite a lot. Um, but I also learned that it's not the worst thing in the world to get hit in the face. It doesn't hurt as much as you think it does. And so that little threshold was passed. Uh, I, I learned that sometimes it, it's just going to be necessary to defend yourself. Um, I learned that to walk away from one of those encounters, I don't mean to say an organized encounter, but an informal encounter, was sometimes worse than just standing up to it and getting pounded. So I, I, learned, I learned a lot about that. Yeah. What was the thinking behind him showing you everything that went on behind? I suppose you've explained the thinking a little bit, but what kind of stuff would he say? I, I just have this image of you seeing these bodies without getting too dark on a, 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 couple, a Saturday a afternoon. Yeah, but I mean, what did he say in those moments? What, 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 was the, what was the big life lesson there, if you don't mind me asking, Richard? Well, he had a... My, my, my grandfather was a great guy. He had a great sense of humour. He liked... He liked ladies, he liked to drink, he liked to smoke cigars, uh, liked to pheasant hunt, or rather duck hunt. He, he also had a certain kind of prurience about him, which I uh, liked. And, and I, I think he thought that this was the good life, that, that, that the good life was uh, exotic, it was unexpected, it was sometimes prurient, it was sometimes violent, was sometimes funny when maybe other people wouldn't think it was funny. That was just his sense of what uh, of what a full life was. It included all of that stuff. And, and, and he, you know, I don't think my father would have looked at life the same way, but my father was dead. So I was left uh, to the resources that he had, and those were the things he liked and liked to do. Um, and so do I. And if, if we were to ask that question again of, of your grandfather, um, I think he would probably be happy enough to see that you were a novelist, that you put all of these uh, kind of bizarre and unusual and prurient <laughs> details to work. Well, he would have probably liked it if he thought I'd made a nickel doing it. <laughs> uh, but, I, but, the, but, the, but the thought of a grandson, uh, and he loved me very much. My parents loved me very much. I was a loved child. But the, the thought of a grandson who became a novelist, I don't think he would understand in the least. I don't think anybody in my family, and although my mother did live long enough to see me publish two books, but I don't think she ever quite got it. Um, it just wasn't the life that they could have pictured for anybody they knew or anybody that was in their family, even though you know we grew up, uh, my, uh, my family, I grew up uh, four blocks from where Eudora Welty lived. So it was in the air. It just wasn't. It just wasn't acknowledged. How did it end up happening then, Richard? You you describe yourself as as dyslexic, as somebody who. Well, I was trying to put words in your mouth. I guess somebody who was a bit wild. But you know, you were up to some mischief and stuff as a teen. Yeah. How did you go from that teenager to where you got to in your career? It's a, it might be hard to fit all that into one answer. But how did you become a writer? 
Probably it is because there, there's always a certain implausibility in anybody becoming a writer. And, and, and one mechanism or one scheme or another, you face that implausibility. I don't mean to say impossibility, just implausibility. I mean, I failed at everything else, to put it short. I failed at being a teacher. I was in the Marine Corps and that didn't work out. I went to law school and that didn't work out. I tried to get a job with the CIA and my, my young wife told me she didn't want me working for the CIA. This is in 1968. Right. So there wasn't anything left at a certain point. I looked around and I thought, what have I ever liked doing that I haven't failed at yet? And, and writing stories, which is something I had done at university, but only just a little bit, but I enjoyed it. I thought, well, maybe I'll give that a whack, you know? And, and when I did, when I tried it, I didn't immediately fail at it. And more to the point, and this is the crucial thing with my life, I think, Christina said, this is a good thing to be doing, do that. I think if she'd said to me, oh God, don't do that, what a waste of time, I probably wouldn't have done it. You got a couple of novels published, but quit to become a sports writer. Yes. Why did you do that? I, I thought it was a romantic job. Uh, I mean, I, I, I think I have Frank Bascom say in the sports writer, what, what a great job it is to just travel around and talk to your heroes and get paid for it and um, you know have all your meals have, have all your meals on the cuff and stay in nice hotels and hang out with other sports writers. It just seemed to be slightly loose, I, I admit it. but it was it was kind of it was kind of cool, I thought. And so when I, when I looked around, I mean I had as you say, written two novels and they hadn't worked out very well. I thought, what can I do as a writer that would be fun to do that I wouldn't mind doing for the next 25 or 30 years? And so writing sports was something that I could do because I mean, it isn't very hard. You just have to really like doing it. Uh, and I knew a lot about boxing. That was, my, that was my ace. I knew a lot about boxing because I paid a lot of attention, of attention to boxing because my grandfather brought me up to do that. I mean, we knew Jack Dempsey in our life. We, we would go to New York and go to Jack Dempsey's restaurant and wow. sit with Jack Dempsey. And Jack Dempsey used to sit uh, in the window of his restaurant on Broadway in New York. And when my grandfather first took me to New York in 1962, that's right where we went. We went to Jack Dempsey's restaurant and sat down at the, <laughs> the table with Jack Dempsey and had lunch. And a, a little bit slow. And he liked very much to be sort of his own sign sitting in his, <laughs> sitting in his um, Broadway cafe. And he knew, my, he knew my grandfather because he had come to Little Rock on some publicity tour long after his days in the ring. And he was nice to me. He didn't say anything particularly memorable. I mean, that's just one of those sort of unfortunate facts of life that you, you, you meet a great person and, and, and he, he doesn't, he doesn't say anything worth remembering. Although once, although once I was in Los Angeles and I was at a basketball game and I, and I looked down and this was during the time of his interregnum, I saw the champ, I saw Muhammad Ali standing down by himself in, in Pauli Pavilion in, in, in Los Angeles. And I just thought, no, this is my moment. I'm sorry, I just have to go down there. So I went trooping down there. I was about 25 years old. And, he was at that time, as I said, it was between his championships when he was not allowed to fight by the hideous American government. And, um, and, and he was standing there, not talking to anybody. And I went up to him and I said, I said, champ, I said, who are you gonna fight next? 
And he looked at me and his, he, he had real wonderful, small, wonderful eyes. And his eyes got real twinkly. And suddenly he took this big fist and he put it, it's like putting a ham right up to my jaw. He said, you sucker. <laughs> <laughs> my, my heart, I mean, I, my heart was, was left out of my chest, but it was also so wonderful because he, he had this wonderful, he had this wonderful, happiness about him, it's, it's, it's wonderful sort of uh, almost true, sometimes cherubic kind of kind of personality. Wow, so I mean, it's it strikes me that that you would quite happily have have stayed a sports writer. I mean, absolutely, if... absolutely. It was it was a it's a wonderful job. All of those things that I described uh, as, as being in the offing were exactly what turned out to be the case. You meet your heroes. You get to write, uh, which was pretty easy to do. You get to travel around, go to a lot of ball games. Um, yeah, I, I would have kept doing it. But then the magazine that I was working for went out of business, right out from under me. And I took my few little clips and I went over to Sports Illustrated, which was the you know the sort of reigning sports magazine of the time, and to some extent still is uh, in the United States. Um, and I gave them my clips and they said, oh no, they said, we're not gonna hire you. You're, you're a novelist, you're not a sports writer. And I said, no, 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 no. I was a novelist, but I am a sports writer. They said, no, you'll never, you'll never take to it. They said, you'll, you'll never take to it. You won't let us edit you. You'll, you'll be too proprietary about what you write. You're just gonna be a lot of trouble for us. Get out of here. So I did get out of there. I went back down to New Jersey where Christina and I were living. I sort of looked around and I thought, well, shit. What am I going to do? I don't have a job. I don't have a profession. I don't have any skills. I thought, well, maybe I'll try one more whack at writing a novel. What would I write a novel about if I could write a novel that I thought was interesting and would be a pleasure to write? Well, write a, a novel about sports writing. Yeah. I, I, I'm struggling to believe that one of the great writers of post-war America was kind of hoodwinked into becoming a novelist by some flunky in Sports Illustrated that thought it'd be too much work to edit you. Mm -hmm. uh, well, if you have a better story, if you have a better story, I'll take that one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so you're a former novelist at that point and, <laughs> and an unemployed sports writer, becoming a novelist again in, the late, in your late 30s, living in New Jersey, and you decide to write about Frank Bascom, invent this character, a 38-year-old, I think he is, in the sports writer, living in New Jersey, who himself gives up a promising career as a fiction writer to become a sports writer. And yet... I've read that an editor told you, was reading the manuscript and told you, it's not going to work, put it back in your drawer and write about what you know, Richard, write about what you know. Yeah, that was the infamous Gordon Lish who told me that in the, in the, in the autumn of 1982. I gave him 125 pages of this book and he just basically said, put it in a drawer and lock the drawer and burn the desk. <laughs> and, <laughs> And, but I, by that point, I, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm like Huck Finn. My little boat was already in the river. I was, and I was far downstream. I, I, I couldn't just sort of chuck it. So, um, and, and it was in fact what I knew. What he meant, what Gordon meant when he said you should write about what you know, he meant that I should go back and write about Mississippi and basically oh, yeah. try to remake myself as William Faulkner. But I didn't want to do that. I, I couldn't do that. That had already been done by William Faulkner. I, I really needed to find something that I could do, that I could both do well and be the world's greatest expert in. That's, so that's sort of the way you have to sort of think about being a novelist. I'm going to be the world's greatest expert in this book. 
And so, and so I had this book basically half finished by then. So I thought, no, I'm going to have to do, I'm going to have to do this. And, and so I had to understand and make up for myself satisfactorily what it meant to write about what you know. It wasn't going to be right about what I had done necessarily, or just what I had done, or right about where I grew up. It was going to have to be what I could affiliate myself with intellectually and uh, like doing and try to think that by doing this, I can make myself useful. The title of the book and the first, the very first line of the book tells everyone that your main character is a sports writer. What do you think your readers presume of Frank Bascom when you tell them that he's a sports writer? What's it shorthand for? You know, you know, I, I, I don't know the answer to that question. And maybe I'll, maybe I would never even ask that question. I knew, I knew what it meant to me. I, I think that, and this comes around at the end of this novel of the sports writer. I think that most people who are writers such as I, or such as anybody who writes imaginative literature, has to have a kind of faith and conviction that something that I think is interesting is something that you will think is interesting in more or less the way I think it. Mm-hmm. So that wondering what the reader would think if I say, my name is Frank Bascom, I am a sports writer, is probably subordinate to making certain that I knew what I thought and I knew what that meant to me when I wrote it. Yeah. And then after that, uh, assume, uh, rightly or wrongly, and it is an act of arrogation. There's no doubt about it. I'm arrogating your attention. Assume that what I think you'll think, or if you don't, I'll make you think it. Mm. Um, because I ask, right? <laughs> and you're talking to three sports journalists here. So uh, yeah. I, I, think, I, I think I'm allowed to say this, but it strikes me that maybe there's a level of immaturity that people see when... The, the main character, you know, when the first thing you find out about the main character is a sports journalist, I mean, in ways it is an elongated ad- adolescence. You know that you're attaching to such massive importance your entire job Steady to, games that other, <laughs> to games that other people play. I mean, I, I'm sure you're right. And what's wrong with that, eh? I mean, yeah. <laughs> Robert, Robert Frost said, talking about poetry, he said, poetry is, is the last vestige of your childhood. You must not go into it too seriously. And, and when, when I sit down to write a novel, um, I th- I'm certain that there's some part of me that partakes of my childhood relish for words. That t- and I'm sure this is true of you all, your childhood relish for words and my childhood relish for games, even if I wasn't good at those games. And, and I don't see that, there, that, that there's anything sullying about that. There's, there's nothing wanting in seriousness about that to draw upon those things that are dear to you and near the heart of you maybe from the point of view of the the ego or the id or whatever that you're just an onlooker to the great stories and heroism of other people at best you're the the narrator of someone else's success maybe to 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 be a to be an observer to to look to look through a window onto life um doesn't mean that you don't have a life of your own. It doesn't mean that you've subordinated your own sense of importance, your own sense of what matters to the, to the lives of others by, by simply reporting on it. You, you are still who you are. And yet Frank Bascom moved on. I mean, you're, you're, you're working on a fifth book about Frank Bascom at the moment. Is that right? I should be doing it now. 
Yeah, we're 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 taking up some of your time here. Yeah. Well, how how far along this are is you? Much more fun. I'm um, 412 pages of manuscript. I know yeah. that because I was just down there visiting it this morning. Oh, brilliant, brilliant. Yeah. So he's a character who's. I mean, he moved into real estate. He's moved away from sports writing. So th despite your love of, 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 he couldn't remain a sports writer forever. I guess in in your career, Richard. I couldn't keep doing that. I couldn't keep. I couldn't. Well, I mean, I not only did I quit doing it, I quit being interested in it. It's one of the things that's kind of a loss to me is that I'm much less interested in sports than I, than I have been in, earlier in my life. I just don't, partly it's because uh, TV is taking it over so much and um, partly because I may just have exhausted my, that, that sense of relish that we were talking about before. Also, and this is to some extent journalists responsibility, so much about, so, so much about sport is about personalities now, less about the games. So much about sport is about you know the, the sexual peccadilloes, the divorces, the the um, I don't know, health and welfare of the of the athletes themselves, and their their legal situations, their where they live, what kind of clothes they wear. I don't give a shit about that. People obviously do though, I guess, if they're reading that stuff. Well, that, that's that's not my measure of what what is important and what's not important. What other people do. My measure is my own measure. Yeah, I think that's fair enough. You're listening to the voice of the Pulitzer Prize winning novelist Richard Ford this afternoon on RT Radio 1. And speaking of measures, we're about to coldly judge and rank his own personal sporting highlight and indeed his sporting life. Yes, I'm afraid we are going to have to bring Richard down to our level right after these. Second captain, first captain, whatever. You're welcome back to Second Captain Saturday. This is all my devil with Kieran Murphy and Ken Early, and we're speaking to one of the world's great writers this afternoon. It's Richard Ford. Richard, you mentioned earlier one of your many, many trips to Ireland, and I heard you say that last year one of your biggest losses during COVID is that you haven't been able to get over here. So you obviously miss the place. Now, you know, I think you know us well enough to know, Richard, that we, we love nothing more than Americans saying nice things about us or anybody from anywhere else <laughs> what, in the world. What so, do you make of us at all, what do you think, Richard? What, what yeah, do you yes. make of us, Richard? What do you enjoy about being here? What, what, what do you like about Ireland? Well, I mean, I mean for, 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 for one thing, when I come there, I, I don't feel like a stranger. And, and, and I, I don't have any illusions, which I think a, a lot of Americans do have. I don't have any illusions that, that I have to be uh, posing as an Irishman, you know, mm -hmm. I'm just not. I'm just, I'm just who I am and, and going about my, whatever my business is. Uh, but it, of course, it's the, it's the place that loves literature. It's a place where you can get into a taxi and have somebody talking about Joyce. Uh, it doesn't happen in Booth Bay, Maine, I'll guarantee you. Um, I, I, you know, people have been kind to me. It's, it's been it's been possible for me to live with my own Irish heritage in a way that's not a burden and, and, and it doesn't become a cause celeb in my life. I mean, my family is all from Cavan and I've been to Cavan a few times, but I've never taken nor felt the responsibility to go pillaging through their through their records as some of my family have. It just it just, it just feels normal to me. I, I don't feel an alien. I feel I can go where I want to and um, have people treat me the way one would want to be treated. But you know, it's, it, and I had the advantage too of being at Trinity and, and, and knowing some of my literary heroes in Trinity and, um, and, and they treated me normally. I mean, it's for me as a writer who has had a lot of good luck as a writer, it, it, it matters most to me that people just treat me normal. Uh, and, and, that's, and that's what I've been lucky to be able 
Seems, seems like a low enough bar though. Just just to be treated normally, that's all that's all you need. Yeah. What what would abnormally mean? How would you be treated outside of Ireland? Well, I don't well, I don't know. I mean, you know, for for every good thing there's an alter, there's an opposite. <laughs> to be yeah. treated with enmity. <laughs> you know, to, to be treated with, with, with circumspection, um, to, 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 to be treated sort of um, as if you were walking around advertising your books, which I'm, which I'm not. Um, it, yeah, it may, it may be a low bar, and you, and you may be, you're right about that, but it's my bar. You've spent some time in Connemara, uh, yeah. I, I know. Um, do you write in Connemara, or is it a break from writing that you're looking for when you're there or anywhere else in Ireland? It's a good question. Um, it's a break, to be honest with you, which at, at my age, it probably wouldn't make any difference anymore. But in, in the past, when I've come to Ireland, I have to be very careful because I have a good ear and I have a sort of a, a, a will to imitate people and imitate their voice. And in the middle of a book, which matters so much to me uh, that, it, that its voice be faithful to what I want to hear, I can't run the risk of writing in Ireland because I'll start writing sentences that don't sound like my story. Mm. So, so, so I come to Ireland not, not to sort of soak that up so much. Um, I, I think if I would be trying to write in Ireland, I would end up writing stories that sounded phony Irish. And I, there's enough of that already. <laughs> That yeah, that is so interesting to me though. I mean, uh, if I were to go on the hunt to to find out what what chapters in one of your books was written in Ireland, or even like what half a page was written in Ireland, and you can't, you just couldn't run the risk of that. That is that's such an interesting thing. Like the it seeps in by osmosis. You couldn't stop yourself, even if you if even if you wanted to. Probably that's true. Probably that's that's ex- that's exactly right. Um, but I've never done it. I've never risked it. Uh, it matters so much to me how something sounds in my own ears. And I, I think, as you say, I, as, as osmosis would be, um, I, I wouldn't, be able to, wouldn't be able to detect it until it was too late. Well, Richard, as a former sports writer, you'd appreciate, we, you'd appreciate our need to put a number on your sporting achievements, like the, the way we would do player ratings in a match or something like yes. that. So we just need, before we do that, we need you to give us, and we've asked you to do this. And I must say, we praised your email earlier on, but you've been quite reluctant to give us a, a personal <laughs> highlight from your sports career in advance. You've given it some thought. Have you come up with something for us? All right, I have. Great. In 1986, which would make me, what, 42? I was in Wrigley Field, Chicago, sitting in the right field uh, uh, box seats. And um, Ryan Sandberg, the great second baseman for the Cubs, hit a screaming line drive right at me, and I one-handed it. (laughs) Was this on the big screen? I just stuck my hand up and, and just snagged that baby. And everybody standing around me stood up and applauded. <laughs> and my hand was twice its size in five minutes. <laughs> but I never took the smile off my face. Just one of those kind of wonderful moments of just, the, here comes this ball going about 150 miles an hour. I just speared it. Nothing that I had failed to do in high school could have ever made me as happy as that. And my <laughs> wife was there. And my best <laughs> friends were there. They all got to do it with me. How's that? 
Oh. Absolutely top <laughs> yeah. I mean, it, That will take some beating this season. That will take some, Yeah, I was just thinking, I think Richard's going to post a score here that could be difficult to beat for the remainder of the series. Murph, it's up to you. Can you please now settle back there, Richard, and just listen to how Murph does it? Can you please, Kieran, rank this sporting life of Richard Ford? You don't understand. I could have had class. We don't have stars in this game, Mrs. Weaver. Well, what do you have then? People like me. I could have been a contender. I could have been somebody. Well, I've been very carefully poring over the details you've given us here today, Richard, of your sporting career, so it's time for me to put it all together, pick an athlete that I feel most closely resembles you and your sporting achievements, and then present you with a score out of 100 to discover just where you will stand on our greatest non-sports person, sports person leaderboard. Senator George Mitchell was last season's opening guest, one of the architects of the Good Friday Agreement and a decent college basketball player, who I accused of doping, of using performance-enhancing drugs <laughs> uh, live on air. Undeterred by that, he earned a respectable 81 points. Uh, the last novelist to appear on the show was Colm Tobin, who described himself as a tennis player who bores his opponents to death. For some reason, that still got him 75 points. So now you've got an idea of where we're going with this. Your capacity across a variety of different codes, uh, squash, baseball, cycling, shooting, other vigorous bouts of calisthenics are of a piece with another towering figure in American life, that of Jim Thorpe, Olympic gold medal winner, professional football player, as well as a professional baseball player, basketball player, even champion ballroom dancer, apparently. So that sort of similar versatility has earned you some points. Your glass jaw loses you a few. Your burning road bike thighs get those lost points back. But it's that miracle of Wrigley Field, the one-handed catch under pressure when, as you said yourself, you snagged that baby is what has really impressed me this afternoon. So, if you'll allow me, that's all good enough for 85 points, <gasps> setting a punishing bar for our guests over the next seven weeks to try and surpass Richard Ford. This has been your sporting life. Beautiful. Richard, happy enough with that? Oh, I'm, oh I, I, I can't wait to tell my wife, and, I, I, and I'll also see Senator Mitchell one of these days, because <laughs> I see him fairly often. I can't wait to oh, tell him. Oh. Very good. Well, I'm sure he lives. Uh, this has been cast to the dustbin of uh, Senator George Mitchell's mind, but long ago. But it's all true. It's all true. Toy Bean's a buddy of mine, so I'll have I'll have to hold it over him too. Lovely stuff, Richard Ford. It's been absolutely fa- fascinating. I should say. Thank you so much. Round of applause, please, for Richard. Thanks, guys. Ah, oh, what a way to kick things off for the new series. Richard Ford, in fairness, he had us from his first email to you, Murph, and he never let up after a promising start. We do have to wrap things up, but before we go, Ken, 77 years old and still absolutely flying. Have you been inspired by what you heard? Maybe, maybe today is the day to churn out a few hundred push-ups? I think there's a lot of years to, to get into that. I don't know if today's the day, and I think today may not be the day. No. Looking at the way that... Well, it's a beautiful, sunny day, Ken. Exactly. Exactly. I love push-ups, I love biking, uh, but once the mercury pushes 17 or 18 degrees, <laughs> then it's uh, manana time. Right, we're out of time. Hope you enjoyed the first episode of the new season. Our guest next week is the playwright and broadcaster Bonnie Greer, who we can't wait to speak to. That should be good. You'll hear us every day this week on the Second Captains podcast. You can check us out at secondcaptains.com for independent member-led shows that also include podcasts like The Player's Chair with Richie Sadler and international series like Where Is George Gibney? Stay tuned to RT Radio 1 for a busy day on Saturday Sport. Big thanks to Killian Down on research, Mark Horgan and Simon Hick for producing. Thanks to John in studio. Thanks, Merv. Thanks, Ken. Thanks, 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 Ken. Catch you soon. Second captain, first captain, whatever. <laughs>